Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode number 136 of ADHD for Smartass Women. You know, a lot has been said about ADHD and creativity, yet there's no real established link between ADHD and creative ability. Yes, we have studies, but the sample sizes are so small, like most ADHD studies that don't involve medication. But the real problem is it's hard to measure creativity, right? It's not like intelligence where we can refer to IQ tests, although don't get me started about that. I mean, what is intelligence really? So what we do know, however, is that those with ADHD, they have higher real-life creative achievements in the areas that they're interested in. And I'm around ADHD women all the time. They are the most amazingly creative people, whether we're talking about creative in the fine arts, the performing arts, or creative in thought, like entrepreneurs or inventors. We have this ability to make connections. We're just spontaneous, out-of-the-box thinkers. And so the nature of our ADHD brains, it's what actually makes us creative. After all, it's responsible for our imagination. So how can all of that not make us more creative than non-ADHDers? In fact, I believe that all artists fall somewhere on the ADHD spectrum. I believe that about entrepreneurs too. So for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Miriam Shulman. Miriam is an artist and founder of The Inspiration Place. Through her online classes, business coaching programs, and popular podcasts, she's helped thousands of artists around the world develop their skill sets and create more time and freedom to do what they love by teaching them how to go from so-so sales to sold-out collections. A graduate of Dartmouth College and MIT, she initially pursued finance, working at a lucrative hedge fund. After witnessing 9-11, she decided to become a full-time working artist. Since then, our guest and her art have been featured in major publications, including Forbes, The New York Times, Art of Man, Professional Artist Magazine, and Art Journaling Magazine. 
Her artwork has also been featured on NBC's Parenthood and the Amazon series Hunters with Al Pacino. Her forthcoming book with HarperCollins' leadership on how to make it as an artist is scheduled to be released in October of 2022. When not working in her studio, you can find Miriam in a museum or spending time with her husband, adult kids, and a tuxedo cat named Ebony. Not Emily. Ebony. Miriam, did I get all that right except for the Emily? Oh my God, you're so generous. Thank you for reading my entire introduction. It's so fun. You're not supposed to tell people that you sent it to me. <laughs> Sometimes I have podcast guests that will say, wow, that introduction was so good. I'm like, it's what you sent me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So we're going to talk all about what it is that you do and how brilliantly you do it. But first, can we talk a little bit about ADHD? Okay. So <laughs> I, is this like, yeah. I, you know, like coming out of the closet time? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> the good closet. So how did you come to discover that you might have ADHD? All right. So I actually was identified in college as having, they called it a learning disability then. And my Official diagnosis was audiological processing, which I assume is related to ADD. I don't know that they gave girls ADD diagnoses back in, did I say that right? Or is it diagnosi? Back in 1987. So, but both of my children do have official ADD diagnosis. And, you know, if you, have two children who are rabbits. Usually the mother's a rabbit. So (laughs) the mother's definitely a rabbit. (laughs) Exactly. And I think my ADD is probably worse than theirs, you know, so. So let me ask you, so you went to Dartmouth, you went to MIT. So what was going on? Clearly you were smart. You had the grades. So what happened and when did it happen? Yeah, it was the first semester freshman year of college was typical a disaster. And <laughs> so tell me, how was it a disaster? It's <laughs> so, so common. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you some funny stories that aren't related to ADD, but I'll I'll keep it I'll keep our conversation focused. So yeah, there was there was like the economics class I signed up for with the Reaganite professor, and I just didn't understand at all what was happening. It's like I don't, I don't get this. So. My advisor put me into this honors physics class, which basically meant I was there with students from India who had been taking physics since the first grade because, (laughs) and I'm not saying that to be funny. It's actually in India. It's true. Like they have, you know, they have their, their math class, their, you know, whatever, whatever the different classes are and physics is a subject that they, they start very early. And I would do the tests and I was failing the tests. But what my professor had noticed is that a lot of my problems were that I would transpose numbers. Mm. I would leave a number off. And he's the one who recommended I get tested. And God bless him. He even then started, before the results came back, he let me start having untimed tests. Mm-hmm. And that made all the difference in the world because now I could take my time. I wasn't making these, what I used to think were just careless errors, but these were processing errors. Yeah. And I wonder if when you're test taking too, that you're a little bit anxious. And so it makes it even worse. 
that would be my kids. <laughs> so not not both my kids. One of my kids is like actually a really good test taker who who has an AD diagnosis. But my but I'm not gonna like identify which kid is which because I don't have their permission to talk about them. But okay. the anxious the anxious one, yeah, she. Okay, now I now I did it anyway. <laughs> okay, too late. Too bad. Terrible mom. Mom demerit. Okay, the girl gets very anxious with test taking. And I didn't get anxious so much. I would just rush through it and like, you know, very sloppily do the test. So it's once I started slowing down and not making those kinds of mistakes, I did much better. I'm very grateful to that professor who who didn't just assume I didn't understand what was happening. He he knew there was something else going on there. Oh my gosh, good teachers, good professors are everything. Yeah. Truly. You know, when there's any kind of a learning challenge, you know, ADHD, ADD, whatever you want to call it. No, I completely agree. And it's interesting. It almost sounds like you were so smart in high school that you were able to cope just fine. But then once you get up to that next level where you're competing with students just like you, it just gets harder and harder. So this makes yeah. perfect sense. I mean, I, and it's not that I came in with the stellar record. So there was clearly signs that mm-hmm. there were dips in my learning profile. You know, I'm really good at some things, but really not so good at other things. And as long as I stuck to what I was good at, I was okay. And there were some slips and slides along the way, but I was able to compensate. And like I said, once I was put into that environment, there was no hiding it. It yeah. became obvious. Absolutely. So I want to ask you this. Have you always felt different from others? You know, it's like, I didn't feel different, but my high school would disagree. <laughs> you know, it's like that. Yeah. So I moved around a lot when I was growing up and like a new school every few years. And one of the things that people used to tease me about is they would call me space cadet. Mm. And then my sister got the same, who, who probably is Actually, I think she has a diagnosis, who we could also assume is ADD because we're a family of rabbits. (laughs) (laughs) So she would also be called space cadet. We were like the space cadets. That was what people (laughs) made fun of us for. And I still do it. My husband's like, "Uh, honey, are you even listening? It's like, no, I'm on this other planet right now having, having my own party. My son used to say with school that so my son succeeded because he said he would go into space, but he always remained in orbit of what was <laughs> happening in the classroom. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, on your podcast, I've heard you mention a couple of things that just, of course, sets my radar off. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's totally ADHD. So first of all, you're an absolutely lifelong learner. And I think I actually heard you say, use the term absolutely before it. The funniest one, though, was because I can so relate to this. You mentioned that you don't like to wear what everyone else wears. It's really important that you're original and individual. <laughs> yeah. Is the, how's that related to ADD? Please tell. Oh, my God. That's totally ADHD. We are really? so original. Yes. Originality is so important to us, assuming that we're totally comfortable in who we are. I mean, certainly there are those of us with ADHD who just kind of want to fit in. But I believe that all people with ADHD, we are meant to stand out. And when we try to fit in, that's where we get into trouble. But yes, absolutely. I'm so bad that if if it's some major event, like I will not even go buy off the rack. I have to have it made, even if it means I have to make it, you know? That's awesome. You don't want to show up, you know, (laughs) looking just like somebody else. 
Yeah, it's very important to me now, but I've had moments over the years where I was less evolved and I would be very upset that I didn't get the memo about (laughs) what the other women were going to be wearing to whatever it was, Little League games. (laughs) I I, I, like really, well, I live in a high fluidant town. Uh I, I think you do too. You're from Palo Alto. No, I wish I was from a high... No, I live in the country. I live in a little podunk town called Pengrove (laughs) in Sonoma County. But it's, you know, it's all properties and acreage. So it's it's nice. But yeah, it's not highfalutin. (laughs) Okay, well... For better or for worse, I do. And I didn't understand that, like, yeah, little, it's, they're all events. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's like, I didn't realize, like, the dress code was going to be quite so high touch here. Yeah, but but now I just embrace it. I really love looking different and just doesn't matter what other people are wearing. So I'm the opposite. I am always overdressed. And so when you come from a little country town and you show up at the soccer games, you know, in full dress and hair and makeup, yeah, you look kind of ridiculous. Well, I've done it both ways. (laughs) That's what I'm saying, Tracy. I never quite seem to get the like, oh, this is for, you know, it's kind of (laughs) like I'm missing that piece. I was like, this is not a dress up event. This is a (laughs) flip flop event. Really? I just I'm don't wearing care. a lace skirt. You know? <laughs> I've also, I know this, I've heard you say it, but I also know this about you. You're highly curious and clearly you're creative, right? Yes. That's why I think that ADD is really a superpower uh-huh. for people who are, and we'll put, and I've, I've heard you say this as well, whether you're an entrepreneur uh-huh. or you're an artist, having good ideas is really important. And our brains allowing our minds to wander is what helps us come up with these good ideas. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to segue into, well, you gave me the perfect segue. You're around artists all the time. And I'd love to know what are the ADHD traits that you see not only in yourself, but also in them? Mm, okay. So managing their time is really difficult. Uh, you know, it's kind of, that's hard. The interrupting. (laughs) (laughs) But what I found, and this is something we talked about on my podcast, what I found is that ADD women tend to get along really well with other ADD women because we tolerate these quirks with each other. In fact, it makes it more fun. Like we have such this fast thinking brain that we're already on to the next thought and we don't need to like complete that sentence. So I'm okay. If somebody interrupts me, it's like, okay, you got it. Good. We can move on to the next thought. Like that's fun for me to talk, to communicate that way. I like communicating that way. It's like very high pace, very high energy. So I find a lot of the artists who I coach, they, they have that same sort of energy where they struggle though is as you say, doing things that are outside their zone of genius. And when you are an artist, you are an entrepreneur, you are running a business. And it's very difficult to be successful if you're only focusing on the art. If you're only focusing on the art, it's a hobby. So you have to be able to do all the business skills as well. So impulsivity, 
is, you know what? I should have continued on with your <laughs> whatever. Nick, just, you know. I'm, I'm just like, gonna... what was the question again? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like on topic three by now. All right, go. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to, I'm going to go to another question and we're going to segue back to what you were just saying, which now I can't remember. <laughs> it's okay. All our listeners are ADD too. Yeah, they all get it. In fact, Nick, <laughs> you should probably just leave this in. Sure. So impulsivity is clearly part of the ADHD definition. Do you find that impulsivity in your artists and do you think it makes them better if you do? When I say impulsivity, I guess what I mean is that, you know, they're, they're more likely to take risks. There's less fear. Maybe it's curiosity, all of those things. I'm not sure that I could I could answer that in the answer maybe that you're looking for. I think mm-hmm. some artists you can have fear along with your curiosity. So, it's about how well they're managing their minds and they may be able to express themselves with their curiosity through their art, but then they're having trouble having that same risk taking with social media or sending out emails or reaching collectors. So on their profile, they may have this strength that is making them an incredible artist. And so what my job really is to teach them how to tap into that and say, hey, I have the same curiosity and the same experimentation that you do with creating the artwork as you do with your marketing. Test it. See what happens. When you create a painting, and I don't just work with painters, I work with lots of artists, like different medium, felt artists, sculptures, photographers. Put that same curiosity and testing when you're creating your artwork as you do in your marketing. Just see it, see what happens. Have this openness about it and not worry so much about failing because that is what makes them good artists is that they are able to experiment and not worry about the painting or the artwork, whatever it is, becoming a failure. If they did, they would never get anything created or they would just be painting the same thing over and over again. So being able to take that same curiosity, that same openness and manage their mind around it towards the marketing, that's a challenge, but it's a skill that they can learn. And do you find that that's a challenge that most artists have? Yeah, I don't think that having ADD and not having ADD would influence that. That managing your mind is really a separate issue. That people who who are not distracted are still having trouble risk taking, especially you know, when we were talking about school, when you're growing up, you're rewarded for doing things right and getting the A. Mm-hmm. When you're an entrepreneur, you could be doing all the right things and you're not getting A's. You're not getting that kind of feedback. You have to just keep believing and believing in what you're doing, believing in your purpose, believing in the service you want to create for others, that you are willing to keep doing it and keep tweaking it until you get it right. And it may not ever get to A work, but your B minus is going to serve the world really well. It's a mindset shift you have to make that you're not going to get pat on the back all along the way and getting those A's. You're going to see a lot of failure and a lot of C's and a lot of B minuses in your work. And that's the only way you can get to that next stage. So talk a little bit more about, you've mentioned managing your mind a couple times. And I, I know that ADHD women definitely struggle with imposter syndrome. Is that part of it where you're just always questioning? 
I didn't know that was part of my problem. (laughs) But but I definitely, I'm struggling now with the book writing, Tracy. So I didn't Uh have imposter syndrome around being an artist. I didn't have Mm -hmm. it around being an art teacher. I didn't have it around coaching. But this... Can I ask you though, here I go interrupting you, is that because of interest? There's less interest there than in the other areas. In writing the book? Yeah. I, I think it's just because- Because you've lived it. You know, you, know the, you know the story. It's not as fun. You know, it's a really good question. There's just a lot of I've never done this before energy around mm. the book writing where everything else I've done, there was a progression that I could step into the baby pool. And then go slowly into the deep end. And I just feel with writing this book. So you're, I was just wondering if your listeners know, but you did say in the introduction. So I'm writing a book and the whole thing feels like you just jumped off the high dive. Here we go. You know, I I had a meeting with my editor. Like I thought it was the the kickoff. It was the kickoff call with my editor and my agent right after we signed the contract. And they said, okay, your manuscript is due in December. Uh, it's like, wait, you mean you're not going to check in with me between now and then? What, I'm just supposed to go and write the book. They're oh, like, yeah, oh. that's that's right. I was like, oh. That's well, and really especially, especially with the ADHD brain, right? I mean, that's just such a big goal. And how do you chunk that down? And yes. And like you said, it's also visible. It's not like you get to practice, right? You are going out there. It's a major publisher. Ah, I get it. Yeah, that's what I said. Like, I'm already. And then I reached out to a lot of the authors from the same publisher, and they're like, oh, yeah, I have a ghostwriter. I was like, okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll need one too. <laughs> All right. No, I'm, I'm writing it. I'm, I'm enjoying the writing process, but it's so interesting how much on my own I feel with this. It's like, it's not school. It's not like, okay, chapter one is due this week, and chapter two is due in two more weeks. Three. There's no structure. Yes. And I'm creating exactly. And I'm creating my own structure around it. So, but I'm working really hard to fight that imposter syndrome because I had so many moments where I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to have to call the editor and let them know they made a big mistake and I have to send my advance back, you know? (laughs) No, no. It's going to be amazing. Of course it will be. Of course it will be. You're going to write it. So talk some more about managing your mind. What does that mean? A lot of it has to do with recognizing that not all your thoughts are true. Oh, totally. (laughs) Okay. So we're having, and I don't know the research, maybe you do, like you have something like thousands and thousands of thoughts per day, right? Would be constantly. 60,000, which I cannot even believe. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say something like that, and then it doesn't sound believable. But yeah, (laughs) 60, right. 60,000 thoughts a day. And not all the thoughts you're going to have are helpful. Sometimes you're going to have thoughts that it's like, whoa, you know, this thought like, oh, I'm just going to like drive my car into the barrier right now. Like you just think that, you know, like these weird things you just suddenly start thinking. So when you have thoughts that are not helpful, if you have anxiety, there is a tendency, and this may be something that's related to the ADD brain, is that if you hyper-focus on those negative thoughts and you start totally. perseverating on a negative thought, that can be very damaging. It's totally ADHD. We call it ruminating. 
Thank you. Yes, ruminating. Ruminating on uh-huh. thoughts. So it's about changing that tape player in your brain. Uh-huh. And what I like to do is when I'm having a thought that is particularly negative is to become the observer of my thought. So I think Eckhart Tolle talks about this. It's like, you're not your body. You have a body. You're not your mind. You have your mind. You're not your thoughts. You have thoughts. So if I'm thinking a thought that's very negative, such as with our example, I don't know how to write this book, then I flip that by saying, I'm thinking the thought that I can't do this. I'm thinking the thought that, and you insert your negative thought there. When you become the observer of your thoughts, it takes the power away from it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. Basically what you're doing, what you're saying is you're coaching yourself, right? So you are thinking about what you're thinking. And I remember reading this article where if you can feel like there is someone above you, and I've always adopted this, I've always felt like this, like I have a parent above me that is looking down on me and protecting me and chatting with me about what's really going on. Does that make sense? 100%, 1,000%. In fact, today I actually had the situation where somebody in, in one of my programs and asked a question and my first thought was, oh, I want to ask my coach what he thinks. And I was like, no, 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 no. You don't need to do that. What do you think he would say? And then in my mind, he told me what to do. Of course, it, who knows if he would give me good advice or bad advice or what actually he would have done. But it's the same concept you're talking about. It's like kind of asking your, and if I was really going to be woo about, like asking your spirit guide, asking the universe, asking whatever it is you are thinking that there is kind of this higher self that you have that you can tap into. What would your higher self tell you to do? If you're saying to yourself, I don't know, asking yourself, well, if I did know, what would I do? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we do, what we tend to do with our ADHD brains because of, you know, the impulsivity is we just react. We don't pause, right? Long enough to even consider that, guess what? We know the answer, right? Yes. Yes. And I want to know if you agree with this statement. I feel like, I mean, I say this all the time, you are the expert on you. We go to everybody else asking for their advice. And if we would just pause long enough to pay attention to ourselves, we know what the answer is in most, if not all cases. Oh, that's so true. So I want to know, I love what you're talking about here. It's not where I thought we were going, but to me, it's always about mindset, and especially with the ADHD brain that tends to ruminate. I completely agree with you. Just because you think something does not mean it's true. And so my first question for myself is always, you know, I think something. And I'm like, wait, is that really true? And usually it's not. Yeah. So have, I'll have a bumper sticker that says your thoughts aren't true or don't believe your thoughts. Do you have one or you're going to get one? I, I think I saw one, like don't believe your thoughts or something like that. Yeah. But the thing about it, though, Miriam, is so many people, they don't even realize that they can control their thoughts, you know, that it's almost like we just feel like our thoughts just keep going and those are, it's all true and it's all real. Yeah. And and that's the greatest work that I do when I'm coaching. And I, I, and you may have this experience too, Tracy, is really helping my clients understand that 
what they believe is true is very often a story they've made up. Mm -hmm. So I'll hear a client say to me, oh, well, when I used to live in New York, everybody bought my art. But now that I've moved to Florida, nobody appreciates art here. But she had also told me like 10 minutes before that, oh, there's all New Yorkers down here. (laughs) So it was like, you know, you know, the story you're telling yourself that nobody in Florida appreciates art is a story you've made up. And there's a lot of stories like that, like, oh, people won't, and I'm kind of trying to make this more general, not just about art, but the kinds of things I'll hear is like, oh, no one will pay those prices or that doesn't work in my niche. You know, and these are stories that they're presenting like facts and being able to recognize that, no, that's, that's a thought that you're believing. And if you choose to believe something different, it will serve you so much better. I remember personally myself when I, so now we're going back a couple of years, I had the thought, the belief that webinars wouldn't work for me, mm. for my industry. Webinars don't work for artists. And I really held on to that story until I started doing webinars. It's like, oh, actually they do work. Do you find that true as well, Tracy, that you're having to break down these false stories that your clients are telling themselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, just this whole idea of that they're defective or they're broken. And in truth, they are far from defective or broken. Granted, we have some weaknesses. I get it. But for every weakness, there's an opposing strength. And when they start to focus on what it is that they're good at, what it is that they're interested in, everything opens up for them. Yeah. And there's that tendency to be very black and white thinking, like it's always this way. Like, And then you get them to question it. Like, well, no, it only happened once. But they're saying, no, it's a pattern for me. Like, well, it only happened twice and you're 30 years old. It's not exactly a pattern yet. A lot of that's fear, though. Don't you think like we make excuses? I mean, I know I do it so that I don't have to do the scary stuff. Yes, 100%. So our brains have evolved to keep us safe. Anytime we're going to do something that makes us feel uncomfortable. So we'll use the example, do a webinar or write a book, whatever it happens to be. So your brain knows you're feeling uncomfortable. Your brain doesn't know the difference between that you're going to leave the cave and get eaten by a tiger, or you're going to write a book. So what your brain's going to do is it wants to keep you safe. It knows you're feeling uncomfortable. It's going to come up with all the reasons why this scary thing won't work for you. And the smarter you are, like you're like smart ass woman, the smarter <laughs> you are, the better you're going to be at coming up with all these reasons why this thing won't work. And if you are an ADD smart woman, you're going to have even more ideas about why this thing <laughs> True. isn't going to work. Now, I don't call them excuses. I call them doubts. Because excuses are something that you kind of know isn't true. And the difference is with these stories that your brain is coming up with, these doubts, is that you're not even recognizing you believe them. You don't see, think they're excuses. You believe that these are true. This is the fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's a huge difference. And when once you can start recognizing that 
your brain is doing it. Your brain is coming up with reasons that may not be true because you have this fear here. That's going to serve you. Now, what's going to happen, Tracy, if you have the fear, the fear leads to doubt. Once you have all these reasons, there are two modes that people go into. They're, you know, it's like flight and freeze. So you're either going to be very confused. So I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this energy. And then you shut down. Or (laughs) you go into procrastinating mode. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And you do all kinds of research. Okay. Of course, here's what happens when you go into all kinds of research. Number one, you're going to find conflicting advice Mm -hmm. and you're going to come up with more reasons why this thing is a bad idea. So usually that, so you have confusion and the procrastinating learning is going to lead to overwhelm. You're going to have confusion and overwhelm. So what happens next? You have fear that leads to doubt, doubt that leads to confusion and overwhelm. And that's why you have poor time management and procrastination. Because if you don't believe you know what you're supposed to do next, if you're not convinced what the right step is to do next, there's no reason why you should do it. So that's what leads to the procrastination and poor time management. And it's not because they're lazy. It's not because they're broken. It's because their fear-based brain has given them all this evidence about why this thing won't work. And your brain will continue to go to work. The reticular function will continue to go to work and look for more evidence that will support those stories that you've come up with. Or more programs and courses to take, right? So you can procrastinate your way out of it. That's right. Because you want to get it all perfect. Okay. So let's say you actually get through all that and you get into action and you do it. What happens? Yeah, well, that's the best thing you can do because I don't think it's possible to be in action and be anxious at the same time. Yeah. Well, we feel so good, right? Because the dopamine kicks up then and fires. Yes. And usually, and most people have this experience, there's a thing that they were so scared to do that they thought was going to take so long. And then you finally get get around to doing it. It takes five minutes. Like, okay, what was I so worried about? I tell the story quite a bit. I was so terrified of live video. For one year, I took every course I could. I had the best equipment, the best tech. I knew it inside and outside. The only thing I didn't do is I never actually used the equipment. (laughs) And so finally, I ended up taking two programs on live video. And one of them required 13 days going live every day. And then I followed that up with one that was three weeks live every day. By the second day of doing it, I was like, you know what? This is actually kind of fun. (laughs) It was no big deal. But for one year, I had made it such a big, huge deal. Yeah, I can see that. I had trouble with the live aspect too. I was like, because when you when you have this perfectionist tendency, you Mm want to do the post production. Why can't why can't I edit out all my all my whatever? Yeah, yeah. So, what you did, what you've created, that really took a lot of vision and creativity, didn't it? Because is anybody else doing this for art? I mean, I think most people would think it's art. You have to be in person to teach this, to do this, to, you know, sell this. Yeah. 
is a big myth that you have to be in person to sell art. And I have two great stories about this. So Amy Porterfield was on my podcast and she actually asked me, don't you have to be in person to sell art? And this is somebody who's like an online yeah. marketer asked me this, which I thought was hilarious that she's doing the this on the podcast. Right. On the podcast, she's asking me this. It's like, you know, people are listening to you say this, right? Um, <laughs> so then the other story I want to tell, this just happened recently. So you actually may be familiar with the artist Julie Moretu. She was at the Whitney. Did, did you get to go to the Whitney when you visited your kids? I know you went to the park that's right next to the Whitney. Maybe you didn't. Yeah. And all Whitney. I can remember at the Whitney was the banana that was nailed to the wall. All right. I did so, not. No, I did not see this artist. I am not aware of this artist. So okay. Yeah. So okay. So here's our cultural moment for your podcast. I'm a luddite listeners. for artists. <laughs> okay. All right. So Julie Moretu is a Ethiopian-born American artist. She has a retrospective at the Whitney, and she just sold a painting online, online for six point five million dollars. Wow. Goosebumps. So, yeah, I, I think that's a record both for her as an artist. Like that's the highest value she's ever received at, for her art and it happened online. So the fact that you have to be in person to sell art, completely untrue. And so is that what you do? You teach artists how to sell their art online? Well, that's one thing I teach them. I teach them all the aspects of selling. So I think it's really important to get the experience and, and thank God everything's opening up again. But online is, is meant to simulate what happens in person. So you can definitely simulate the experience online. But for those who don't have that in-person experience, I think it's highly valuable to figure out if you have a marketable style. You can do it online. Of course you can. But the learning curve is much faster when you're getting that real-time feedback. It's like market research when you go in person. You get it so much faster. So there's that aspect. And then the other thing you had asked me, Tracy, was about the online teaching. So that had almost happened to me by accident. I was selling my art online and somebody on Etsy reached out to me and asked me, do I teach an online class? And this was back in 2012, which doesn't sound so long ago, but in online years, it's kind of like dog years. It is. Oh, it's like, <laughs> yeah, forever ago. Right? I was like, wow, I didn't, I didn't have this in 2012. So she said to me, um, do you teach online classes? I was like, what is that? I don't know what that is, but I'm willing to find out. And once I found out, having had a tech background and being an artist, I was very interested in, in learning all about it. And I jumped right in. So I, I didn't know how to market online at that time, but I was willing to learn. And did you have any thoughts like, this can't be, this can't work? Or were you so excited about it? And you just, you had that vision, you saw that, oh my gosh, this can work. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't think this can't work. I actually naively thought all I had to do was throw out a few social media posts. So what happened was I asked two of my artist friends to do a class with me. So we each taught in our own style. And I thought between the three of us, we would, we would fill a class. Well, we had less than 10 people and I, we were charging $35 per student. So I lost money on that first class. 
And thankfully, after that, I discovered, well, okay, here's how you create an email list and here's how you market and this is what you need to do. So I I naively did not, I I didn't think this wasn't going to work. I thought this was going to work and I tried it the wrong way. And, you know, it's like the blessing of the skinned knee. Uh, That's how I I earned my stripes. And I've been a student of marketing and I'm always looking for how I can tweak what I'm doing to make it work with the current environment. Can I ask you, I found the online world so overwhelming. I mean, I've always felt like if I want to do something, I figure it out versus with online. I literally floundered probably for two years just trying this and trying that and then, you know, this other thing and procrastinating learning and I never felt like I knew enough and everything changes so quickly. Was it easy for you or did you get that overwhelmed too initially? It's a really great question. And I'm going to give you an answer that maybe you're not expecting. So for me, having gone to MIT and having a computer programming background, not that I built my own website, by the way, but (laughs) I had this attitude that I could do it and I could figure it out. And a lot of artists actually have that I'm doing it all myself attitude. Actually, that's something that's very common among artists. I think that attitude slowed me down. Mm-hmm. And it took me a lot longer to get to where I am now because I was doing all the things. And it's only as I begin to let go and hire support, it, yeah. and not just the VA, but like outsourcing things, outsourcing Facebook ads, outsourcing this. I, I don't edit my own podcast. So the more I got help, then the faster I grew and trying to do things myself and knowing how to do things myself was actually a curse. It actually hurt me. It it would have been better if, and and what I like to tell my artists is just because you know how to do something doesn't, and even if you're good at it, doesn't mean you should be the one who does it. So I used to say like, oh, Steve Jobs, he may know how to build an iPad, but he's not building all the iPads. (laughs) You know, he's not putting yes. the screws in. So, however, I think the fact that you knew that you could figure it out because you have a tech brain. I do not have a tech brain. I always felt though, like in order for me to delegate it, I had to be able to do it first. And I'm not sure if that's even true. Yeah, I used to have that attitude as well. I think I have a high risk tolerance and a high tolerance of of fear. Part, mm-hmm. part of the reason is because of my learning disability. I think Malcolm Gladwell in one of his books talks about this. So did you, have you come yeah, I love that him. as well? Yeah, yeah. So I forget which book it is. It's, maybe it's Outliers, where he does talk about how there are so many people on the top of their field who have different types of learning disabilities because we're used to failing. Uh-huh. Like that is not a big deal for us because <laughs> we've done it. So that's one area which relates to your audience where I do have a high tolerance for failure. But the other area, which Malcolm Gladwell talks about in this book as well, is my father passed away when I was five years old. So that set me up as well for having a high tolerance for risk and failure. So Gladwell talks about one example where somebody had lost a parent and how and, and all the research but it's basically what they found in general is that whenever you see survivors that th- they develop this 
this resilience. I yeah. mean, resistance earlier. Resilience. And well, that too. Yeah. And sometimes I say to myself, I don't know if you've had this thought as well, like my kids who've had this kind of charm childhood in the high flute in town and everything, and, you know, they didn't have to move every two years and they have both their parents and th- all the things they, that I, a completely different life than what I had. Sometimes I say to myself, you know, it's a good thing the pandemic happened because otherwise nothing would have ever happened to them. Yeah. Like, it's like, there's some lessons here and hopefully they, they're coming out a little more resilient Absolutely. I completely agree with that. I see that in my son who, you know, three high schools in four years and just, you know, fail, fail, fail. And a couple of weeks ago, he looked at me and he said, I do not regret one thing that has happened. Because of this, I am resilient and I know I can figure anything out. And if you've, you know, if you've literally led this charmed life and you've gotten A's and everything and, well, my daughter, she went to one of those, you know, highfalutin schools and I think there are a lot of kids like that who just basically had everything handed to them. They've never had to build resilience. They're super bright, you know, in the areas that school tests and then they get out into the real world and yeah, life's a little different, (laughs) right? Yeah, I think Angela Duckworth talks about that as well in her book, Grit. Mm -hmm. She talks about like the students who were straight A students and suddenly get to college and they have the first challenge that comes along, they fall apart. Yeah. Because they don't have that resilience that they need, whereas other students who maybe had to struggle for whatever reason do better. So the, you know, the struggle is a gift. Makes sense. Okay. So... I have one other kind of more artist creative type question that I really wanted to ask you. So we know that society basically values efficiency and productivity. We know that certain subjects are more valued in school than others and sadly creativity and and subjects that encourage creativity sometimes get, you know, pushed by the wayside. And Ned Hallowell and John Rady in their new book, ADHD 2.0, they talk about, and, and other, you know, ADHD experts as well, they talk about the importance of creativity to our brains, the fact that, you know, we need the right creative. And if we don't have it, we don't do well. And so my question for you is, do you find that with yourself and of course your artists that when you can't practice your creativity, whatever your creativity is, do you find that you get down maybe sometimes even a little bit depressed? Oh, 100%. I, you had said that on one of your podcast episodes, and it's 100% true that when we are not creating something that we do get depressed. But yeah. that doesn't mean you always have to be creating art. I, I consider everything that I do now my art. My book is my art. My podcast is my art. My online classes are my art. But I'm always in creation mode. And that keeps me really happy is creating new things. It's like therapy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it just gives me purpose in my life to like, I'm creating something that didn't exist before just with the power of my imagination. And that's what art is. So whether your art is your business or it's something that people recognize as fine art. It doesn't matter. It's you're creating something from the power of your imagination, from the power of your mind. Totally. Yeah. I just, what flashed through my mind is that it's probably the best somatic therapy you can do. <laughs> getting out of your head, you know, into your body, using it, getting into action. Okay. So what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? Mm, that's a really great question, Tracy. I think it's about finding that one thing 
that lights you up, that you, you know, finding that your hedgehog that you can do really well and that lights you up and not worrying about being good at everything else and just letting go and giving yourself grace that you don't have to be perfect in everything. It's city slickers. <laughs> and probably most of our audience is like, what is she talking about? Did you see that movie, City Slickers? Of with- course. I mean, we're the same age. And I keep thinking like our language is so like 50-year-old woman language, like even fi- highfalutin. Like who uses that word anymore? You know? like, it's like, my father like, like, that word. Exactly. Like my grandmother. Uh, <laughs> yes. Okay. So Bring me back, though. I don't know which scene you're talking about. And for the people who don't know, this is the Billy Crystal movie. Yeah. And whoever the guy is who won the Oscar, the the, the older guy. Yeah. And did push-ups with one hand when he won the Oscar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. The Marlboro Marlboro man. Yes. He was trying to teach Billy Crystal and whomever his sidekick was. There were three of them, right? Right. Billy Crystal is the only name we're going to remember. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He was trying to teach them that that's what life is about. It's the one thing. And the one thing is different for everybody. But, you know, they were like, the one thing, what are you talking about? And then, of course, as the movie played out, you know, for Billy Crystal, it was family, right? Mm. (laughs) So anyway, yes, I completely hear and agree with what you're saying. Okay. What is your number one ADHD workaround? Do you have one? Oh, yeah. I have to write everything down. I write down what I'm going to do. I write down my goals. I it, Everything has to happen analog. I, but here's the thing. I need both. So if I don't have my phone dinging, my computer ringing, and it visual on my calendar, I will miss it. Yep. I mean, I was the mom who was like, forgot my kid at pickup one day. You know, it's like, oops. Wait, right. only one day? Well, you're amazing, mom. <laughs> well, I would literally drive by, you know, kids I had promised to pick up <laughs> an hour before, drive by and wave at them. <laughs> and I just forgot. I have to compensate. Like it happens and then I get so humiliated. Like I get a call from my child's school. It's 3:40. Where are you? It's like, "Oh, I was I was in the basement packing my kids <laughs> camp trunk. So I was like helping him the whole time. I didn't know he was waiting for me at school. I didn't I had no idea it was 340 already. I lost all track of time. So having all these extra systems in place so that it's makes it so hard not to do what you're supposed to do. Exactly. And it's just a constant reminder. And it sounds so ridiculous, but I completely hear you. I mean, I have, it dings on my phone, it dings on my computer, it's on my watch. Literally, it can't be in the watch. It has to be on my Apple Watch face. And then it shows up in my Alexa. So it's like, I don't miss meetings anymore. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I do that for everything, though. I mean, if it's not written down, it doesn't happen. And when you say you write everything down, do you also write, like, for example, as we're sitting here talking, every time you say something that I want to remember, I'm writing a note. And it's it's almost like that helps me focus. Do you do yeah. that too? Yeah. There, there's a doodle right now that says 146 on, on my notebook right in front of me. And that is because, and there's like a fancy doodle around the number 146. And that's because you are on podcast episode 146. <laughs> And it's all fancy because you're an artist. It's not that fancy, but it's Mind like, ugly. but the doodling is actually 
I'm glad you brought this up. I know we're trying to wrap up the episode, but in, <laughs> in high school, that was how I stay focused is I would, I would draw all my teachers. Oh my gosh. Really? And that's and how did- I developed my skill as an artist was I would, <laughs> I'd be drawing my teachers in class because that's what kept me, kept me focused. And so did they ever come over and see their, their image there and Oh, God, no, because sometimes I would draw animal bodies on them. (laughs) Oh, my God, you're so funny. Okay, so, Miriam, are you working on something that you want to tell us about? Okay, well, the the book is not coming out till October 2022, so, but I would love... Yeah, right. Exactly. And I told I told my editor, please don't give me such a long deadline. The original deadline was April, like come back in April when the book's finished. I was like, no, that will never work. But what I'd love is your listeners to come actually listen to the episode that we did together. It was one of my favorite episodes, 146. So it's the Inspiration Place podcast. I would love for them to come over there and have a listen. Literally, that is what you want to talk about? <laughs> Where can well, they find you if they want to know more about you? That's yeah, so the, lovely, though. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. But you see, I have I have an ulterior motive. The, I my figured. podcast is my gateway drug. So people, <laughs> people who come to my podcast, though, and they get indoctrinated to what I have to say, those are going to be the, the ones that I work with. Those are the people who join my programs. And there is so much content there that I think would serve your audience, whether they're an artist or not. It's all about being a creative. And what I do there is I bring the best marketers, people people like you, people like Amy Porterfield, come to my podcast and I translate what they teach into how this works for if you're creative. Which is basically anyone with an ADHD brain. Pretty much, Yes. Okay, so is there a URL? Yeah, so the inspiration place, it's on all the things, or you can go to shulmanart.com and find the podcast there. Shulmanart.com forward slash iTunes. So it's on Apple, Spotify, all the places. Wonderful. Miriam, thank you so much. And this is going to be in the show notes, by the way, if you're looking for it and can't find it. Thank you so much for spending time with us here today. Oh, I always love talking to you, Tracy. Let me know next time you're in New York. we got to hang out. I'd love to. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Miriam Shulman, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really help in that regard. One more thing, if you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio or written message. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.